Without Bilbo, there would be no J.R.R. Tolkien. Without The Hobbit, there would be no Lord of the Rings, or Silmarillion, or Great Tales, or Rings of Power, or History of Middle-Earth. Bilbo's tale, as Tolkien himself insists, is the linchpin, the essential connecting link of his entire legendarium. Today we embark on a journey to unravel how The Hobbit stands at the heart of Tolkien's myth as we delve further into the mysteries of the Waldman letter. Along the way, we'll explore Tolkien's disdain for allegory and dissect the profound meaning he gives the word magic. Oh, Hedwig, we're not in Hogwarts anymore. Before we set out on adventure today, I'd like to share a note I received from a fellow wanderer like you. Luke sent me this message on Instagram. Quote, Just wanted to say thank you for making such an awesome, informative podcast. I've been a long-time lover of Lord of the Rings, but have yet to dive into the books. I was a bit daunted by the idea of reading The Silmarillion, as I heard it was quite extensive, so I figured I'd search for a podcast to introduce me to the overall story first, and yours has been perfect. Thanks again. I am very grateful for fellow wanderers like Luke for listening and for their support. If you would like to make a small donation to your favorite Lord of the Rings podcaster, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash L-O-T-R podcast. You can contribute to some wish list items like a new mic or make a small general donation. Every small donation helps. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash L-O-T-R podcast or tap the link in the show notes. And if you're new here, Magovanyan Melon, I'm glad you've joined us. Make sure you tap that subscribe or follow button and leave a review if you love the show. Now, let's wander. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last episode, we started to explore The Waldman Letter, an essay written by Tolkien to his publisher in 1951 that is now published as a preface in Tolkien's The Silmarillion. We reviewed what Tolkien viewed as his motivations for the Lord of the Rings legendarium. These included his love for languages, his perceived lack of good mythical stories for England, and a desire to create a collective body of legend that other hands and minds could contribute to. We'll continue our look into the Waldman letter. Specifically, we'll see how Tolkien started to see his stories coming together. Tolkien's next idea, though, seems to disparage the idea of creating a connected legend. Quote, Such an overweening purpose did not develop all at once. We see here Tolkien's writing style. He usually had some seed of an idea for a story in his mind, and he would start writing to see where that seed would take him. 
In many ways, Bilbo's warning about keeping your feet on the road or you'll be swept off somewhere is perhaps an unconscious piece of advice about writing, from the author to the author. And yet, another unique aspect of Tolkien's writing style, and why his stories have so much truth of the human experience in them, is this next claim from Tolkien, quote, Always I had the sense of recording what was already there, somewhere, not of inventing. This claim ties directly back to Tolkien's concept of subcreation, which we covered in a few episodes back on his essay on fairy stories. Subcreation is the idea that authors and creators invent fictional worlds and stories within the broader context of the ultimate creators, or gods, primary creation, as a means of reflecting human creativity and participating in the divine act of creation. This idea is central to Tolkien's philosophy of storytelling and world-building. Tolkien believed that there was a kind of pre-existing, timeless, and archetypal reality or mythical dimension that he attempted to tap into when creating his fictional works, particularly in the context of Middle-earth. In this view, Tolkien saw himself not so much as an inventor, but as a discoverer or a chronicler of the stories and world that already existed in a sort of imaginative or mythic realm. In essence, Tolkien felt that he was bringing to the surface what was already inherent in the human psyche, the universal themes, archetypes, and mythic elements that resonate with people on a profound level. By grounding his work in a sense of history, language, and mythology, he aimed to create a world that felt as if it had always existed, and he saw his role as a writer as more of a custodian, revealing this pre-existing reality rather than inventing it from scratch. Tolkien continues by mentioning a few of his works that are independent and don't fit within Middle-earth, Leaf by Niggle, for instance. He even brings up The Hobbit, saying that it was, quote, quite independently conceived. I did not know as I began it that it belonged, in his grand collection of more or less connected legends. Yet The Hobbit was a remarkable key for Tolkien, quote, it, meaning The Hobbit, proved to be the discovery of the completion of the whole, its mode of descent to earth and merging into history. Let's explore this for a moment. When Tolkien is grading papers as a professor at Oxford, and he sees a blank page and is guided to write, quote, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He had no idea where that story would go, much less that it was connected with the great tales and legends that he had already drafted in his mind. Specifically, those legends would be the likes of Beren and Luthien, the fall of Gondolin, the children of Hurin, and the beginning inklings of the Lord of the Rings. In his mind, those tales were distinct, independent, maybe slightly cross-pollinated, but largely self-contained. Not until The Hobbit, and I would assert probably with the advantage of retrospection, that Tolkien realized the key, the connection, between all his tales. The Hobbit is the linchpin that brought it all together. Remarkably, this insight, of The Hobbit being the final puzzle piece, is the perfect explanation of why people feel so jilted when they go from reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to trying The Silmarillion for the first time, much like Luke mentioned at the top of this episode. These works are written from entirely different viewpoints, with The Hobbit, written from the perspective of hobbits as, a, as variations of mortal men, and The Silmarillion written from an immortal elf's perspective. 
Tolkien says it this way, quote, As the High Legends, Legends here with a capital L, referring to the work we now know as the Silmarillion, as the High Legends of the Beginnings are supposed to look at things through elvish minds, so the middle tale of The Hobbit takes a virtually human point of view, and the last tale blends them, the last tale being The Lord of the Rings. I find it fascinating how Tolkien characterizes The Hobbit as a kind of revelation, a connecting link between the various tales of his mind, almost as if his own imagination had given him a map and a mysterious key to a hidden door, while an unexpected party of dwarves had landed on the doorstep of his storytelling, ultimately leading him through a series of adventures to the mountainside of a dragon's lair, where the elusive keyhole to a hidden door awaited discovery. And suddenly, akin to the last light of Durin's day, the keyhole emerged and the door unlocked, aligning the pieces of his legendarium, all thanks to a courageous hobbit who dared to enter the dragon's lair, and an author who dared to join him. Moving on, Tolkien wastes no words in explaining his flavor of writing, quote, I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory. Tolkien's aversion to allegory is legendary. Let's take a moment to examine that statement. On the surface, I believe Tolkien wanted to avoid any tale that was didactic or condescending. For this reason, as we mentioned in the previous episode, he didn't claim the Arthurian legends as a distinctive English myth, and Tolkien especially didn't want to come across as preachy or having heavy-handed moral lessons in his works. Now, that's not to say that Tolkien's works, or myth, as he likely would have called it, doesn't have a moral component to it. It certainly does. But the limitations of allegory did not provide for the richness of depth and interpretation that Tolkien was aiming for. Many Middle-earth wanderers are familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is dripping in Christian allegory. While Tolkien was a practicing Catholic, his aim was different. He desired to create narratives that were rich, multi-layered, and capable of resonating with readers on various levels. He believed that stories could be more powerful when they possessed depth and complexity, rather than being reduced to simplistic allegorical representations. Yet he still wanted his stories to have a ring of truth to them, a feeling of actual history and timeless wisdom. For this reason, I would strongly advise you to not buy into the theories that Middle-earth and the War of the Ring are direct allegorical symbols for World War I and World War II, both traumatic events for Tolkien. He did not want to restrict his storytelling by deliberately crafting works with a one-to-one -one correspondence between elements in the story and real-world events, issues, or allegorical meanings. Rather, he preferred to create fictional worlds and narratives that could stand on their own, independent of any allegorical interpretation. One step further, in his essay On Fairy Stories, Tolkien describes how literature is the highest form of art because words, without a visual representation to accompany them, must rely on both the author's and the reader's experience with that word. If I say bread, for example, what image comes to your mind? For me, a loaf of white bread, maybe toast with some cinnamon sugar on top. For others, it might be flatbread, or maybe even lambas. Tolkien appreciated the idea that readers could bring their own interpretations and experiences to his works. He believed that a story's impact should be personal and not dictated only by the author's specific intent. By avoiding overt allegory, 
he allows readers to engage with his stories in a more open and imaginative way. For Tolkien, the beauty of literature is that the author and the reader create art in the reader's mind as a sort of collaborative venture in sub-creation. And yet, as Tolkien continues, quote, any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. And then the main point of his myth, quote, all this stuff is mainly concerned with the fall, mortality, and the machine. He then explains what he means by each of these ideas. By the fall, he means, quote, it may become possessive, clinging to the things made as its own, scare quotes added by Tolkien himself, the sub-creator wishes to be the lord and god of his private creation. He will rebel against the laws of the creator, especially against mortality. By mortality, not only does he mean the essential functions of life, but also the limitations of life, that our lives come to an end. But another piece of mortality is the desire to create art, particularly art that withstands the wearing of time, art that lives on immortally, even after its sub-creator has reached mortality. But this striving for art is sometimes at odds with the necessities of life. Still, quote, this desire is at once wedded to a passionate love of the real primary world, and hence filled with a sense of mortality, and yet unsatisfied by it. In other words, mortality drives life to create art, and the fall drives creators to become possessive of their creations. Hence, quote, both of these, the fall and mortality, alone or together, will lead to the desire for power. How does Tolkien define power? Quote, making the will more quickly effective. That desire leads to, quote, the machine or magic. Okay, I know this is getting heavy, but stick with me just a little longer. The fall and mortality lead to power, or the desire to effectuate your will more quickly, which leads to machine and magic. It's time to take a brief break, but when we come back, we'll dive even deeper on the use of magic in Tolkien's crafted myth, including a critique of quote-unquote magic in Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn and J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, and a little bit of praise for Amazon's Rings of Power. Shocking, I know. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Quick recap, the fall and mortality lead to the desire for power, or the ability to make your will happen more quickly, which leads to machine or magic in order to make that happen. Machine, Tolkien admits, is, quote, our more obvious modern form, though more closely related to magic than is usually recognized. This idea is easy to grasp. Take out your phone and send a message to someone. Wherever they are in the world, they can receive that message. To anyone living just 10 years ago, that technology is magic. By magic, Tolkien means two things. Number one, quote, 
all use of external plans or devices, apparatuses, instead of developments of the inherent inner powers or talents. And, number two, quote, the use of these talents with the corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing other wills. Let's pull over to the side of the road and examine this more closely. Tolkien believed in the importance of inner qualities, virtues, and talents that exist within individuals or characters. In his fictional world, these inner powers often take the form of inherent gifts or abilities, such as the courage of hobbits, the wisdom of elves, or the strength of men. More specifically, Elrond is known for wisdom, memory, and healing, whereas Aragorn has unique traits of nobility, bravery, and leadership. And still further, Galadriel embodies true beauty and grace, and a never-ending striving against evil in any of its forms. Magic, as Tolkien defines it here, is the opposite of relying on these natural, intrinsic qualities, but rather on creating external machines to accomplish your goals. Hence Tolkien's words, external apparatuses. This aspect of his definition refers to the use of external, artificial means, or devices, to achieve a desired outcome. These external methods might include spells, incantations, enchanted objects like Silmarils or Rings of Power. What is the fatal flaw of such machines? It all goes back to mortality and the fall, rebelling against the natural laws of the Creator, seeking to cling to or possess a thing crafted by your own hands. That is what Tolkien means by his second definition of magic, quote, the use of these talents with the corruptive motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing other wills. The will to dominate, which means fighting against the nature of the world as designed by its creator, is perfectly represented by the idea of a bulldozer. It attempts to plow through nature. Tolkien believed that the true danger of magic lay in the motives of those who employed it. When individuals or characters sought to use their talents or powers for selfish, malevolent, or dominating purposes, they corrupted the inherent goodness of those abilities. Magic, in Tolkien's view, could be seen as a metaphor for the abuse of power and the desire to dominate or control others. I say metaphor, but not allegory. The act of coercing other wills, forcing one's own desires upon the world or individuals, was a morally impugnant use of magic. In his stories, this often led to disastrous consequences, such as the seduction of the One Ring. Let's follow Tolkien and take these definitions of magic one step further by thinking about how elves versus the enemy, capital E, view magic. The magic of the elves is art, quote, delivered from many of its human limitations, more effortless, more quick, more complete. Hence, the magic of the elves, their desire to make their will more effective, is in art in crafting things of beauty, quote, in sub-creation, in alignment with the primary creation of the Creator. While the magic of the enemy is power, quote, domination and tyrannous reforming of creation, the enemy in successive forms is always naturally concerned with sheer domination, and so the lord of magic and machines. Yet this desire has an even more ironic twist, quote, this frightful evil can and does arise from an apparently good root, the desire to benefit the world and others. Now, I have a rare bit of praise for Amazon's rings of power. Given what we've just learned, 
and even the very words of Tolkien himself. I hope you have some added depth to the scene in Rings of Power Season 1, Episode 8, where Halbrand, recently revealed as Sauron, is attempting to convince Galadriel to join him. He says, quote, You bind me to the light, and I bind you to power. Together, we can save this Middle-earth. Galadriel pushes back, quote, Save or rule. And here is the key to evil's use of power and its apparent desire to do good. Sauron replies, quote, I see no difference. Then Galadriel fully rejects Halbrand Sauron because, for her, magic is not, as Tolkien said, quote, domination, the tyrannous reforming of creation. Yet for Sauron, even with good intentions, that is precisely what magic is for. I know this is deep, but can you see why I am so enchanted and fascinated by Tolkien? Just back up and review his definitions of magic. And back up even further, where magic is a result of power, which results from the fall of mortal creatures rebelling against mortality. These are core themes to understanding the world and works of J.R.R. Tolkien. These are the critical ideas that make Middle-earth what it is in our hearts and minds. And we haven't even gotten to Tolkien's so-called brief summary yet. Contrast this with other fantasy authors' myths and magic. For one, it is a pseudoscience of metallurgy. Swallow such and such a metal and you'll gain certain powers. Powers to do what? I don't know, beat the bad guys. For another, magic is a bunch of Latin words matched with stick-waving techniques that allows you to do anything you want without any consistent rules or imaginable limitations, unless someone else who can say Latin words faster than you says that you can't do such and such magic. While these magic schemas are fun and entertaining, and certainly made their authors millions upon millions of dollars, I predict that their charms will fade with time, their metals will melt with mortality, and yet the tales of Tolkien will still shine as bright as the silver light of the tree Telperion in the spring of Valinor at the dawning of the first age of Middle-earth. My fellow wanderers, we are taking it slow through this allegedly brief sketch that Tolkien wrote about his own legendarium. Are you not as spellbound and enchanted as I am? This is the magic of Middle-earth. Thank you for wandering Middle-earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, 
and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.